Good evening. This is an exciting part of our Writers Live series. I actually was not scheduled to be here, but when I, I changed my schedule, because there are few perks, uh, as you can imagine. Well, actually, it's wonderful to work in a library when you love books and reading. And one of the other perks, though, is to get to meet um, people like tonight's guests um, who have been so much a part of a series that I particularly loved reading. And so I'm very pleased to have you um, know our guest and also meet Mr. David Rosenthal. Thank you. Also tell them that, and I also have to tell you that we've been looking at this podium because we just got it today and it's brand new and we just are so excited about yeah. that too. So. <laughs> How's it look from out there? Great. Look good, yeah? Uh, I want to thank um, the Pratt for having me tonight to introduce our guest, Eva Gabrielson. Um, folks like you and I who come to these readings are always interested in hearing how authors do the hard work of creating books. And tonight is sort of a double treat because we have not only Eva, who is an accomplished architect and writer and uh, political activist of her own, but she also was the um, long, like three decade long companion of Stieg Larsson, who wrote the phenomenally popular Millennium Trilogy, which I'm sure all of you have read at least one book of, if not the whole thing or seen some of the movies. Um, so Eva is um, going to talk about her own work and also about um, Stieg Larsson's work. I was able to, I wish I had the book last year, I was able to travel to Stockholm on a vacation. Uh, it's a beautiful city and reminded me somewhat of Baltimore because it has water all around the downtown area. Um, and if I had had her book, I would have had gotten much more enjoyment out of the trip because she uses her book um, to tell you about the places, the real places that turn up in, in the novels. Um, but she also goes beyond the, the places and beyond the characters, uh, the real-life characters that are in the book, because she tells you the insights into Larson's uh, mentality, some of the, the uh, traumatic episodes of his childhood and, um, and growing up that really contributed to the themes of his book, how women are portrayed, how mothers are portrayed in the book. Um, all of these, she has really um, interesting insights, uh, too, and I hope she'll share those with us because it will make the reading of the books even more enjoyable um, if you can go back and look at them again. So I don't want to take too much of your time, uh, so I hope we'll give a nice, warm Baltimore welcome to Eva Gabrielson. I think I have too much to say, really. So the main, my main problem is rather how to keep it short and efficient. Um, I thought I'd read a few passages from my book, uh, and and uh, then I'll talk about uh, what's in my book, why I wrote it, uh, what I got out of it, and uh, also get back to something of. of um, 
what was the main points in in millennium so we'll see how it goes and uh, I don't know how you do it here but uh, at the events that I've done before uh, people usually want to ask some questions afterwards is that how you do it here as well Okay, then we'll do that. Since you were starting by talking about writing and the problems of writing, I thought I would start with a passage in my book on how Millennium came about. And it goes like this. Uh, Stig didn't sit down one day at his computer and announce, I'm going to write a crime novel. In a way, he never formally began to write one at all, because he never drew up an outline for the first book or the next two, still less for the seven he intended should follow. Stig wrote sequences that were often unrelated to the others. Then he would stitch them together following the thread of the story and his inclination. In 2002, during a week's island vacation, I could see he was a bit bored. I was working on my book about a Swedish architect, a professional town planner, but Stig was at loose ends, going around in circles. So I asked him, haven't you got some writing to work on? And he said, no. He was really very bored and annoyed that I was so absorbed in, in my book. Um, no, he said, but I was thinking about that piece I wrote in 1997, the one about the old man who receives a flower in the mail every year. Do you remember that one? Of course I do, I said. And then he says, I've been wondering for a long time what that was really all about. <laughs> So he got right to it, and we spent the rest of the week working outdoors on our computer with the sea before our eyes and grass beneath our feet, and we were very happy. So this is how complicated writing can be sometimes. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to to bring this up in my book because there's been so many speculations about um, uh, planning of a book. It has to be a lot of planning if you have a global success. Um, you have to have uh, very definite plots. You have to know where the story is going. Um, you almost have to write the book before you write it. And there was nothing like that going on at all. People have also said that there were a lot of research done to write Millennium, and I have to refute that as well. In my book, I say there was no research. There was a life, a life with me. And that was <coughs> actually the basis of the research. There were a few things added, like checking up certain facts, but really nothing major. And uh, So that's how, how that book started. Um, I also want to bring it up because that's almost the way my own book, um, There Are Things I Want You to Know, started. Uh, it started off as a very private project in uh, around 2006, when I uh, simply had come to grips with what had happened to me two years, almost three years after Stig died. Uh, I couldn't 
adjust to the situation. I still had my grief. I still had this very surprising inheritance thing going on. Uh, at the same time, I was more and more almost besieged by media. First Scandinavian media and then international media. Uh, and I was really confused about what had really happened and why. So uh, I started to transfer my handwritten diary, which my sister forced me to write uh, the day Stig died. And because uh, she said that if you don't write it down, you will forget it all. You'll remember absolutely nothing. Um, and I think uh, this is something that I've heard heard later on that shock does that to you. It sort of penetrates your brain to an extent that that is trauma, any trauma. It's war trauma, it's personal trauma, it's it's trauma from violence. You forget. So I wrote. And it, it was this, these handwritten notes that I started to put into my computer just to get a grip on what had happened and when. So that's what I started to do. It was a personal project, totally. I never meant it to be a book. Um, I also found an American author who did a bit of the same. That was Joyce Carol Oates. In her book, A Widow's Story, she says that uh, a memoir is a pilgrimage. Uh, and I, as I understand her, she, she means that it's, it's not an academic investigation. It's a very personal journey. It leaves you at a new point at the end of it. It leaves you at a new point in life. And I fully agree with her. And that is why I, my pilgrimage was, so to say, um, as well to understand and to find a new starting point in my life. But the book grew from this personal thing. Um, I started to add things around 2002 um, in response to all the questions that media were asking me um, coming to Stockholm for, for TV documentaries and, and interviews asking about Stig, asking about Stockholm, asking all these whys. And it was mainly the same questions over and over again. And one thing they, they absolutely couldn't um, come to grips with was uh, the, the quotes, quote, quotations in the first book about uh, the violence against women, which comes from a, an official report. And I even remember one Spanish journalist who, who refused to write an article until he had gone home to, to Spain and checked out the facts and this report for himself, and then he just emailed me back. It was true. <laughs> the amount of abuse against women was this great in Sweden, and he simply couldn't understand it. But it was put there for a reason in Millennium, because uh, Millennium is all about this kind of violence and discrimination and, and also the, the just fight against it. But I got all these questions from media. And I even, um, there are official millennium tours now in Stockholm. Uh, but I did the first ones with the media 
people, showing them the places and talking about it and so on. So I guess that's where the city of Stockholm got the idea later on to to uh, do it as well. But this was all very, very, very exhausting for me. At the same time, I was still trying to come to grips with my life. I was trying to um, uh, get my home back because the family had also inherited half of our home. So I and they didn't. They said they would give it to me, but it didn't happen. So I had really no idea where I was to live. I couldn't. I couldn't afford to pay them to buy Stig's half, which they owned. So they, they were sort of hanging this like an axe over my head for three years. And that was also one of the reasons that I wanted to go through my diary and see what really happened and when and what did I do. Could I have mis, misjudged people so badly even though they were distant? Could I really have been that blind? And the answer to that is yes. It's quite possible. You never really know what people can do. So I had a private reason for this book. And then I had this media reasons. I, I simply needed to answer all the questions uh, once and for all. Uh, so I wouldn't have to spend my, my free time and my weekends walking in, around with international media all the time. I simply have to give some answers uh, and also that I would be able to give the answers. Something happens, things are not only lost in translation, they are also lost in articles. They, they, you, you seldom get the article back before print. So there's all kinds of odd things that suddenly appear that keeps being repeated as well. People use that as, as sources, as true sources from the internet. And, and So not only did I want to um, say what was what once and for all, but also try to refute some of the odd stuff that that uh, was circling around. Things about Stig as a person, for instance. Uh, there are quite a few journalists who, given Stig's obsession with with uh, research, and uh, of course the amount of research that must have gone into Millennium, however he would have been able to do that. It, it only took two years to write 2,000 pages, so any calculation would show that you really wouldn't have time to do that much research, having a full-time job as well. So... Um, that was a bit odd. But I also had to explain something about Stig's character, uh, our common background, because uh, I think uh, that played a huge part in what went into millennium in the terms of justice, in the terms of um, fending for one's community, uh, taking care of each other, um, helping each other out, um, and that was also, uh, for me, a sort of personal journey back into our, our, the start of our life before we met. Because I, I wanted to understand for myself, how come we stayed together for so long? Why didn't we get bored? Uh, did we 
develop the same values during our life? Uh, did any of us compromise away strong values in this process? Or did we have such strong values from the beginning in our background that those were the things that kept us together? So I needed to go into Stig's childhood and my childhood and, and the background in this northern county in Sweden. Uh, just for myself, but also to, to explain some of the, the morals and the intentions with, with um, the Millennium books. So it grew from a private project into something that was had to be more and more public. Um, and that is a bit like how Millennium started, uh, by chance. Uh, but for me, out of necessity. Uh, for Stig, out of boredom. Um, I thought I would list some of the things that I saw necessary as, as to refute uh, things that were said about Stig, which were very upsetting, and no matter how much I tried to denounce it to say that this wasn't true, there was always some article or some media who wanted to use old info or make up their own info. Uh, for instance, like Stig could not write. That was a huge issue for a few years. Uh, there was also uh, another thing that I actually wrote the whole Millennium series since Stig could not write. Um, things like... Um, there were a couple of journalists who, who opened up their interviews with me saying that, uh, well, <clears throat> it must have been... Uh, could you tell me something about the difficulties of living with such an unsociable, introvert, obsessed man? <laughs> and where do they get this from? He was the absolute opposite it's, it's, it, I mean, they were creating myths about him that simply were not true. And meanwhile, people were creating myths about themselves as well. Uh, quite a few uh, people wanted to be Elizabeth Salander, so there were quite a few people who say that I am the role model. And uh, there was one poor girl who looked physically like people imagine Lisbeth Salander, and she happened to be, uh, be working at one of the large uh, TV production teams in Stockholm. So she was a bit harassed for quite some time. <laughs> she didn't do anything, but others did. They saw her, and yes, that must be the one. So there are a lot of odd things going on that uh, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't simply let, let go anymore. Uh, there was a rumors about us that Stig and I had separated. So, uh, and there was a rumor that uh, he deliberately didn't write a will. So, uh, going into why I accidentally happened to to land a very very good job, uh, but at a distance from my home, so I worked away from home four days a week. 
doesn't mean we're separated, just that I could do something that I thought was very interesting and also get away from, from Stockholm, from the capital, and going out into the country to see some real world. <coughs> that was important. And uh, that Stig didn't write a uh, will, well, if you don't have anything except an apartment, you don't write a will. Um, why should you? Uh, he signed the contracts for the books six months before he died. So, I mean, had he lived for another year, of course there would have been something in place, but uh, you don't plan to die. We were doing the very opposite. We were planning our future together. So that was what we were doing. Yes, there are, I found other interesting uh, parallels in Joe's Carol Oates' books, A Widow's Story. Um, she she was able, I mean, being the legal widow and all, she was being able to uh, continue some of her husband's uh, leftover work that needed to be finalized. And uh, one of the things was to to edit and publish the Ontario Book Review, which she did. And then they had this garden that used to be her husband's garden, and it was slowly disintegrating, so uh, somehow she felt that uh, her dead husband wouldn't really approve of that, so she really had to make an effort to plant and, and tend these... <clears throat> these trees and bushes somehow. Uh, so she had to start something new. She had to cultivate what he had started and so on, plant anew and keep things tidy and so on. And I tried to naively uh, do the same, uh, which got me into a lot of trouble. Um, I um, f- First of all, I wanted to get my home back. And second of all, I wanted to uh, be able to manage the Stig's literary legacy, both Millennium and, and his two thick books on the extreme right in Scandinavia, and uh, other small texts that are here and there and already are in print, some scientific, science fiction articles and stuff like that. Because uh, I thought that the family uh, somehow um, were... Um, uh, naive or or um, something like that that they really needed my help and um, so I wanted to so to continue to cultivate what I saw was Stig's garden so uh, I had a uh, I had an old judge who who pro bono drew up a document about this both of the apartment, that I would get that one back, and also that I would manage the literary legacy, legacy for the legal inheritor, so to say, his family, and that they would uh, themselves um, decide how much money I would get from that, from the royalties, uh, how many percent they would keep the bulk of it. And uh, this this just uh, sort of became the beginning of, of uh, years of pressure and harassment and stuff like that, because um, they were not interested at all in, in having me 
in that process. They just wanted to have the total power themselves. And I thought that was stupid. It's bad business. It's better if you have people who actually know what the books are about, who actually knew the man, who can make good decisions on translations and who can actually read the translations and have something to say about them when they are wrong, which I experience now with my book. It's hard work. I probably could have done a lot in in, uh, the the film scripts as well. Uh, But no, this was all a question of selling and not really of managing. Which you may not have uh, really noted. uh, So in the English translation, but but, uh, uh, just the title was changed in the English translation. The original is Men Who Hate Women. And now it's a children's book, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And to make sort of minimize her as well um, <clears throat> from a rather angry young, though not that very tall woman. Uh, she's not a little girl with a small dragon tattoo anyway. Uh, <clears throat> but the tattoo was also diminished in the book. So what you have in the English version is some small little thing on her shoulder but in the original Swedish edition, it's a huge, huge dragon in, uh, in red, green, and black. It goes from her shoulder all the way down her spine, and it ends up on her buttock. But now in your version, it's a small little thing on her shoulder. It's like pulling the teeth out of the tiger or something like that. It's, it, and it's pointless. It destroys the character. I mean, why? Why the, the dragon is there to remind her of, of a deep trauma. That's why it's so big. And that's why people who see it, for instance, the doctor who treats her, gets a shock. It's, it has an impact, this image of the dragon, and it says something about her. And that's lost now. It's more powerful in the original. And this is the kind of things that shouldn't happen if you have somebody who's managing the literary estate. (coughs) But it did in this case. Uh, So uh, (coughs) I want to bring up something that's uh, often overlooked in Millennium, which has to do with the dragon and the new title and all that, and it's the feminist stance in, in Millennium. Um, I find it particularly interesting that this is a point that is the basic from from the original title Men Who Hate Women to this children's books thing uh, but also later on in, in reviews, in debates and so on uh, people are rather more interested in focusing on, on uh, the the anti-racist message, which is there in Millennium, if you know how to see it, um, there's, it's not a coincidence that uh, most of the good guys have um, mixed origins. Most of them have one original ancient Swedish name and then something new, something Spanish, something 
Arabic something. And that's no coincidence. It's, it's a subtle way of saying that this is a new society. We still work as a team. Uh, but what they mostly miss is, is um, uh, the feminist perspective in the books as such, the, the fight against violence against women and, and discrimination. And I think it says something to do with the, with the times we live in. It's, it's much more interesting to talk about uh, more, I wouldn't say scandalous things, but things that we hope are in, are in history. And that is the extreme light, right wing, the Nazis, and so on. Uh, so the focus on Stieg as a person now is often around his 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 uh, uh, called a crusading journalist in these matters, uh, and that is true. But the feminist side of him is not brought up. Somehow it's it's it's, uh, and I, I don't really get it because that was the whole point of of these books. Luckily, there's one government institution who who knew better, and that's the Spanish government. Um, they they saw the books for what they were worth. They saw this feminist stance. Uh, they they um, uh, recognized uh, the books as as. Uh, uh, a sort of mosaic of different ways of subjugating people, in this case women, uh, to the point of uh, beating them and killing them. Um, and um, so they awarded Stig uh, a prize for this in uh, 2009. And the government authority in Spain who did this wasn't just any authority, it was quite a young authority, it only was four three or four or five years old. It was newly set up. And it was set up when Spain changed um, their um, penal code, their laws on, on domestic violence. So uh, from, say, um, the beginning of 2000, um, uh, any, anyone who, who um, commits domestic violence against the partner or the children uh, are to be brought to trial within 48 hours. And then you have to have all the medical records done, you have to have the police investigation done, you have to have the witnesses in place, all documented for this to, to function, and this is a huge apparatus. So uh, in Madrid alone, they had to set up seven, eight special courts just to deal with this matter. And each court had their own team of researchers, police officers, um, and so on. And a huge number of administrators, of course, and a huge number of judges who specialized in this. And, and uh, <clears throat> this, is, this can be shaky legal business, because you never know if somebody is innocent. 48 hours isn't much. Uh, so to secure that this was legally safe and, and didn't infringe on someone's rights, uh, they set up this new authority whose sole function was to monitor the work of these courts and especially the judges and go through the cases and make sure that nobody was thrown, convicted for things they had not done. And it was this authority, this government authority that had awarded Stig the prize and I kind of like their 
their uh, motivation for it. Uh, it sums up as uh, the books have have been able to show to the pan Spanish people the importance of this new law and our work as an authority, something which all our reports and statistics and seminars never were able to do. And it's 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 it was very it's a great honor for me to to be there and and receive this prize on behalf of Stig. So if you're interested in changing laws you could see look to Spain and see it can be done. And it, it's probably also, I should think, very cost-effective. Because taking violence out of a society means a more peaceful society. And it means not just peace for the family involved, but for the neighbors. And people just become more productive. I think it's good business to have laws like this. Good society business, not private business. Um, so I thought I would read something from my book about the, the feminism in Millennium and how it uh, also uh, was practiced by Stig in his life. The Millennium Trilogy is a catalogue of all forms of violence and dis discrimination against women. When Stig was a teenager in Umeå, that's where he, uh, his biological parents uh, lived and where he lived from he was nine years old with them. When he was a teenager in Umeå, Stig was devastated by a dramatic incident that marked him for life. One weekend, he witnessed the gang rape of a girl at a campground. Some of the rapists were friends of his and he refused to have anything to do with them afterward. From that moment on, he blamed himself for not having intervened. A while after that horrible episode, he ran into the girl in town and tried to apologize, but she was refusing to hear him out and drew back from him with an accusation he never forgot. Get away from me. You're one of them. And this isn't his, the source of his feminism, but I think it opened his eyes so when I met him in 1972, he was already a staunch feminist. He preferred the company of women and liked working with women more than with men. And what's more, they generally liked him back. His, his best friend when he was uh, a little boy growing up with his grandparents was also a girl, and I think that contributed to his, his way of understanding more than himself. And whenever he worked, Stig treated men and women the same way. He held them to the same standards, didn't mind one bit taking orders from women. If he encountered macho careerists who tried to block the advancement of Stig's women, he either obliged them to change their attitude or eliminated them from his private life. And this, I must say, I saw personally a few times, and you don't know what to do if you're to applaud or, or laugh. You sort of want to do both because you want to applaud what Steg did, but you also want to laugh at the total surprise of... It's always the man who, who sort of realized that 
whoops, I'm cut off forever with this important journalist that I absolutely want to be in touch with and so on. But he was, he simply had enough. Stig simply had enough. And he also always gave credit to, to women he collaborated with. He always mentioned them even though everyone wanted to talk to him about his major research, his great intelligence in finding things. He always said, well, I did this with so and so and so. He never forgot to mention their names. And that's also this, this way of being as a human being. This is also why women play such an important role in the Millennium Trilogy. The women are of all different ages and professions. They have very varying personalities, but they have one thing in common. They are stubborn, like Stig, even pig-headed in what they do. And like him, they give as good as they get, and they get their revenge. So I wanted to... In my book, I wanted to to link what was real life into what went into the books, just to explain that it's it's not necessary to make to have big plans and a lot of research when you when you write even thick books or or mega successes such as this has been. Uh, you you all have a life. Uh, you can all write, I hope, in, and I wanted to demystify and de-dramatize the millennium success by doing this, because there was really nothing more to it. There was boredom and a life. I think I stop there. I don't want to read any more from the book uh, right now. If that's okay with you. Yeah. Are you organizing the questions, or am I? Call them out, or if you want to just do it. Yeah. Okay, why don't you go ahead and then we'll come to you. Did the, did the character of, of Michael develop along with Elizabeth, or were they separately developed by the author? Uh, they were separately developed. Uh, the main character is really... Uh, the, the, the people at the Millennium magazine. So it's a team who's the main character from the start. And Mikael Blomqvist would sort of be one of the lead figures in that. But he was so boring. You needed a counterpart. And what could be more of a counterpart than someone like Lisbeth Salander? So she was invented out of necessity. To, to get some spark into this. <laughs> How we met? Uh, we met in 1972 when we were uh, 18. 
uh, at a meeting against the Vietnam War. It was a huge movement in Sweden. There were hundreds of thousands of people involved in, in against that war. And we came in rather late, just two or three years before the, the, the peace treaty was signed. And the reason wasn't just academic, it wasn't just the media coverage and so on that, that uh, sort of drew young people to, to this movement. It was also the fact that we had quite a few uh, ex-servicemen, American ex-servicemen or deserters, and they were our age, and they were just destroyed. So it was a matter of stopping the war, not just for the Vietnamese, but it was unbearable to see kids, men our own age, being that. It's horrible. Um, you mentioned that the Spanish government, kind of, or people in Spain, ultimately understood the fundamental theme of violence against women in various forms that is communicated through these books. Uh, uh, I'm sorry if I missed it by coming in two minutes late, but did, um, in terms of Sweden, which is the initial universe that apparently he saw um, weaknesses in the protection of women, did uh, did you uh, see any embracing of that message within Sweden itself? How? Yeah, I understand. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen. I've seen. I've seen nothing. There's there's uh, there's some um, state funding for women's shelters and so on, but and and but most of these shelters are anyway often run by people who aren't paid and so on. Um, some of them even start uh, just by women opening their homes to, to beaten women and so on. And, and you, can't, you can't say that this is taking care of the problem at all. I mean, you, you, need, you need laws. People can't. Otherwise, people are trying to enforce some kind of justice, and God knows where that ends. You need to have laws, and you have, need to have proper institutions that can be properly supervised to come to terms with these things. So we, we have a lot of violence against women in Sweden. And there's a lot of statistics on that, but as usual, most most women are too ashamed to report anything. So I guess we're not worse than other countries, but I, I don't think we are... We're not better either, and, and the laws certainly aren't better. I mean, I think we should... Enforce. We're, Spain is a member of the European Union, and so is Sweden. Why can't we look at each other's laws and harmonize them? And this is a very good law to to sort of adopt for for Swedish for the Swedish society or for any society. Do, in, in a larger sense, do people in Sweden do they embrace the books uh, as bringing you know attention to the country, or do they think? it brought the wrong sort of attention to the country. I and mean, we have that same sort of thing in Baltimore. There have been, there's a really popular television series, uh, a few of them about Baltimore, and they tend to...
which one is that? Which one is that? Oh, the wire. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> it's hugely popular. <laughs> yeah. Some people would think that it emphasizes the wrong parts about Baltimore. Mm. So I wondered, in Sweden, um, was, were the books embraced, or did some people feel that it sort of brought the wrong sort of attention, like um, domestic violence and other problems? Um. No, but pe- people know what the reality is like. So, so the Sweden general thought, well, yeah, this is what it's like. But it's great. It's it's a relief to see that somebody is trying to fight against not just the violence, but against the corruption and the abuse of power and so on that started to become evident as well in our country. So, so, but it's it's I guess maybe. Maybe from the sense of image, the image of a country, it, it's it's not that positive for people who would like to portray another image in in business or in politics and so on. But but you can't. The ordinary Swede has no problem with this because this is what they see and know and find find truthful. I think it's worse to to. Uh, Try to build up and continue to to um, advocate a dream castle when it's just air. It's better to get down to to reality and see. Okay, we have this problem, and like I, that's why I think Spain is so interesting. We have this problem. How can we solve it? Well, yes, we have Spain. At least you face the facts then. Technique. He was very busy working as an investigative journalist, mm. and did he, the reports say that he slept very little, and so how did he do his writing, what time of day? And the second question, um, and you, you deal with this in the book somewhat, mm. um, he died you know, at a very young age, 50 or 51? 50, exactly, 50, yeah. Um, you know, tragically young, um, and he had written three, and had written uh, a few hundred pages of a fourth book, and also, as you mentioned, had planned to write ten in all. So the um, question is, where does that fourth book stand right now? And you sort of leave it hanging, obviously, in the, uh, you know, it's in a computer 
in the expo offices, I guess, when you when your book ends. Uh, um, so where is it right now? Yeah. <laughs> well, the last question. I, 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 I think I think you have to accept that he is dead. He he completed three books, and that's it. Everything else is just because uh, not nothing nothing is being being done about securing the intentions or the quality of the work or even even the words in it. Things have changed, so nobody cares. It's just a question of selling. So uh, I sincerely hope that nothing will come out of this fragment of a fourth book. I think having ghostwriters having a go at this would be horrible. It would diminish the value of the first three that are somewhat okay anyway. So in hindsight, I wonder if I was stupid to once offer to, to manage the literary legacy and try to finish the fourth book. Maybe I opened the door to ideas that otherwise wouldn't have been there. So, I don't know. And his his writing habits are, well, people who say he slept two hours and, and was a workaholic, uh, I don't know, I never saw them living with us, actually. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> he worked extremely much the last year of his life. Uh, he did have a full-time job, but I'm more and more, after talking to the people at the expo office, I don't think that Stig actually worked with what he should have been doing there. But he was writing on, on the third the third book then. Uh, so he was never that uh, an extreme workaholic normally. Uh, I mean, we did live together, and uh, we did have a life together. Um, but he probably wrote four or five hours a day. But he wrote fast. He had he had this gift of of a great storyteller. It just flows out of them. And this comes from from being a very good storyteller. Uh, I mean, orally, he could tell stories for hours and hours and hours. It just even small things in life that we could have experienced together, he'd seen something completely different happening. And he could do something, a story of 20, 30 minutes about that, and I could sum it up in two sentences. (laughs) So he really had a gift. And translating that into writing, I don't think he translated, he just wrote how he normally told stories. And very fast. I, I am sorry that you were treated so shabbily. It's very sad. And <coughs> I am sorry about that. Did the two of you ever discuss getting married? Or <laughs> sure, we were going to get married in 1983. Uh, Unfortunately, we were also um, active in in raising money for cooperatives in Grenada. And you might have forgotten it, but the United States invaded that island. (laughs) So (laughs) the marriage sort of was put on hold then. Uh, And 
so we were going to get married a few years later on, but by that time it was not possible anymore because Stig had started to write articles for the British anti-fascist magazine Searchlight. Uh, so people were starting to um, look for him in the extreme right circles. They they do they do have hit lists and so on, and they do. In, in Sweden, it was it still is extremely easy to find out information about people, the social security number, the properties you own, the car you drive, your telephone number, your parents' names and addresses, your children, your children's school, anything. And until a few years back, you could even go to the police authority and get people's passport photos so you actually would know who to... They banned that just recently, just a few years ago. Um, So it was for our own security that we stayed unmarried. Because by that time, Stig would be unmarried in all the public records. And he couldn't be linked to me. And even though they would have his address in the public records, they would go to that address, but there would be no Stig Larsson there. And then, then they might try, well, he probably has an electricity bill. But no, he had no electricity bill. Um, he must have a phone. No, he had no phone. All these things were in my name, including the name of the door, on the door. So that's how we tried to keep ourselves safe. And he was threatened. There were people convicted of of uh, instigating others to murder him. Uh, and they were convicted in 1993. That was the first lot. And at that time, the police in, in the house search, they found a list of uh, about a thousand names at the home of one of those guys who were convicted. And that very same list surfaced again, but by now it was 2,000 names in a, in a house search in 1999 when they actually went and, and killed a trade unionist for trying to get rid of a Nazi guy who was uh, about to get a trade union post in his work. So they went and executed him. And the same very list they found at the murderer's home. Uh, but by then it was 2,000 names. And they're still at it. They still they have copies of this list, complete with all the personal data and so on. And Stig's name was on all these lists. So they are very happy that he's dead. It was a heart attack. Mm. The wrongdoing. Yeah, the, the question is, um, he references wrongdoing with corruption within the government, and was that actual corruption that he was reflecting, or was it fictional? Hmm. You mean the um, government funding to these Polish? The uh, the whole. The, the whole uh, Oh yeah. Was, is this something yeah, that was yeah. reflected in the Swedish government? Was this a plot at the time he was writing about it? 
you know the secret spy ring here? Yeah, sure. It was active in the 1950s. It was working, working with the United States, CIA. Sure it existed. This was during the Cold War. And the ones who were uh, manning this group were old um, uh, Nazis. Well, there was one guy um, who uh, Lisbeth Palme, Palme's wife, uh, pointed out as being the murderer, but he was uh, he was acquitted of this. Uh, so we we really don't know. There's a lot of speculation going on about um, secret police from South Africa who really had uh, motives to, to kill off Palme at the time because uh, he was trying to stop uh, the arms trade there. But there were so many people who had reasons to kill him and, and of course a dozen of them might have been present in Stockholm that very day anyway. So it's, it's, uh, it feeds conspiracies. Uh, we, we still don't know who killed him. No, it's not. No, they are the same. This, this is the question of, of what you do when you just want to sell and you don't bother about securing any author's right. What they did was they sold the rights to the English-speaking world, to the British publisher. So what you have here, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. That as well, yeah. Parts parts are are gone even in the Swedish original from what Stig wrote, which makes no sense either. So. In the, uh, uh, not a question, two comments. One, Millennium Magazine, Expo Magazine, Nazi hunting, crusading journalist, Nazi and crusading, Nazi hunting, crusading journalist. I think the parallels are obvious. And those are what allowed people to dismiss the other concerns in the book, the fact that the writer and the character were so similar. I think people allowed themselves to dismiss it by thinking it's just a self-fancy and not concern the actual like problems exposed in the book. Mm, yeah. And another comment is J.R.R. R. Tolkien, writer of Lord of the Rings, his unpublished work did get printed with some supplemental biographical material, and his son finished writing the other book, I believe. I believe that's a respectful way to finish unpublished work for the relative or best friend writer, and I would suggest you finish writing <laughs> I have no rights to do it. I have no no power at all, and this is this is a, this is a financial power game out of mega proportions. I mean, if I don't know, last I heard last year there were some sixty million copies sold all over the world, and if if the family just gets say one dollar a copy, they have six hundred 
600 million dollars they have. But imagine then what the film industry has, what the publishers in, in all over the world have. So, so it's... it's hmm. They are a bit too much. I mean, they are, they are more than Goliath to me. <laughs> so I, I'm... <coughs> I have to think about how to tackle them a bit better than just go out and do things. I just want I just wanted to thank you and Steve for all you've done anti-apartheid, anti-war, anti-trafficking. That's wonderful. If you don't know this, uh, Ronald Reagan gave six thousand medals out after the invasion of Grenada. And, and finally, if you haven't heard about the Violence Against Women Act. With I actually, this is why my book, this one is late. I wrote a book before this. I needed a co-author to do the research for me then. And this is about cohabitants. Other cohabitants, other cases like mine, who to their surprise after 18 or 20 or 30 years lose everything for relatives who they didn't understand or were very distant to. And I also showed how tricky it is when you use the word cohabitant in, in, in insurance claims or, or in legal claims or anything like that because you, you are only regarded as, as have, have the legal right to divide the household goods that you sort of bought together, which is chairs and, and cutlery and stuff like that. So I wrote a book about that, hoping this would start a debate. And nothing happened. Nothing happened. And what immediately happened after it became known, uh, my situation, because this is going on every day with so many people. And if you can't go to court, we cannot even go to court. There are no court records. There's no statistics on on the amount of, of tragedy and the amount of people that are affected each, each, each year about this. So you have no statistics on it. Uh, that's why my case was so important for people to know that this is going on. But do people write wills? No. They've done service on that. No, people don't do that. Uh, do people get married? Well, they did the first few years because they, after Stieg died, they realized that who this is a problem. Friends of mine got married, for instance, because they were close, they knew. And then it dwindles away. You forget, because you cannot, you cannot accept that you, you have another status than a, than a husband or a wife. When you are treated, you, you fly two for one, you get discounts, you, you, you're treated, even in, in official service, there's, there's this little box you can tick are you married cohabitant? So you are seen as equal until someone dies. 
and people cannot understand it and it's it's not a problem that you can inform away it's it's a reality you are equal and then you realize that you were not so i have tried i wrote a book about it but nothing happened i have to find some new way of doing this that's all <laughs> yeah so thank you very much thank you